Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 109 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Bitten, an interview with Chris Newby. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Zapatello. So, Matt, we started hearing about the book Bitten from many of our followers. Specifically, Maria Mooney was jumping up and down, and she told us we had to read this book. So I bought the book, I put it on my shelf, and I really didn't feel like reading it because I didn't want to deal with the, you know, the whole conspiracy theory concept. But then I actually took some time to take a look into Chris Newby's background, and I found out that she was the daughter of a military pilot, that she was raised in a conservative Mormon family, and that she was an engineer. So I started to think that perhaps, you know, this woman had a little bit more credibility than some of the folks that traditionally write these types of books, and I read the book. And then I read the book again, and I read the book again, and I kept talking to you about it. Richard, first, I really thought this was going to be a trigger warning for many people with Lyme disease like myself. But after hearing you tell me over and over again how great this book was and interviewing Chris Newby, I realized there's really, there's really a lot of gold here that we have to share with the community that could be a potential path to remission for many people suffering with chronic Lyme. Well, Matt, and that's really the most important part of this book, and Chris does uh, issue a call to action at the end of the interview, so I'm hoping everybody stays with this podcast all the way to the end, because Chris makes it very clear that there may be a path to remission within the documents, the top secret documents that she's been trying to get her hands on, and more importantly, there may even be a vaccine available. But even if neither of those things are available, if we could get the documents that the researchers use to engineer this bioweapon, it may allow us to focus our research efforts and save a lot of money and shortcut to a uh, remission. So Matt, I am really excited to introduce to the Tick Bootcamp community, the author of Bitten, Chris Newby. Thanks for the invitation and being such a super fan of the book. Chris, one of the things that I, I wanted to share with you generally before you begin to share your background with our listeners is if I was going to pick someone to write a book about a conspiracy, they would be probably 180 degrees from where you grew up. So can you share with our audience where you grew up and what your background was like prior to you coming in contact with your tick disease? Yeah, so I, I came from a military family. My dad was career Navy. He was a, um, a Navy pilot, went on and off carriers during the Vietnam War. I lived all over the US and all over the world. And then I went to engineering school. So I have two engineering degrees, one from University of Utah and one from Stanford. And I'm, I minored in, I was a pre-med minor, biotech minor. And then I went into tech. I designed telephones for Bell Labs. I designed a portable tablet computer, one of the first tablet computers for convergent technologies. And then I worked for Apple in their technical marketing group. That's where I really started writing. And then I had dreams of, I wrote children's books and short stories, and then I had a lot of success in screenwriting. And I was, I was working in tech, and I, I won a couple national awards, and I thought, I really want to write dramatic screenplays. And then, then the Lyme thing happened, and that was like a, you know, a six, seven-year gap in my career. And then I went and worked at Stanford as a science writer. So I've worked for nine and a half years at Stanford in the medical school writing about medical breakthroughs, hero researchers, learning everything medical. And then this brought me to the book. So Chris, one of the reasons why I suggested to you that you are 180 degrees away from where I'd expect somebody writing a book about a conspiracy would be from, especially about a military conspiracy, is that when we were first recommended to 
uh, your book by uh, one of our podcast guests. Her name is Maria Mooney. She's from New Jersey. My initial reaction when Maria was describing you and your book was, okay, we have some woman from the left coast. She probably was raised by hippies. She's finding a conspiracy where there's probably no conspiracy to find. And then I started doing some research on your background and I find out that you're raised in a Mormon family. Your dad was a military pilot. You were a military brat. Your mom was an architect. I mean, you couldn't have been raised in a more traditional environment. So that really caused me to look at you and your book very differently than I expected to look at it when, when I was first introduced to you and your book. So have people been surprised that somebody with your background has written such a powerful book about a military conspiracy? Well, I think a lot of, especially the mainstream media has brushed it off as conspiracy theory. Oh, it's another, you know, Plum Island book. So, but once they read it, then I get lots of expressions of gratitude because it's very fact-based. So I'm an engineer, so I'm a lover of facts and evidence. Um, I'm used to sorting through really complex problems with a lot of data and separating the wheat from the shaft, figuring out what's important and trying to connect the dots. So I, I would say um, once they read the book, then they appreciate my approach. I'm very clear about what we know, what we don't know, and what needs to be investigated to answer these questions. And it also helps that I've, you know, lived in this medical school world where I was in the group that runs and designs clinical trials. So, you know, you have to be really careful about overreaching in your conclusions and presenting all the evidence, even if it doesn't fit your hypothesis, because maybe you're wrong. Most conclusions initially in science are wrong, and then you get more evidence. I, I, yeah, I think people were... It's easy to write off. There's so many conspiracy theories and fake news now. But once people read the book, I mean, I've been, been getting secret love letters from scientists at universities all over the world saying, hey, thanks. And hopefully some of them will run back to their labs and try to answer these questions using modern scientific methods. Can you walk us back to what your life was like before you and your family took the vacation that you took that resulted in you having contact with ticks? Yeah, I would say we're, we were, my husband and I were living the Silicon Valley dream. I mean, we were, my husband did serial startups. We had two boys in middle school and, you know, the Silicon Valley startups are just really intense. So we decided, you know, he would be offense and, and do the startups and I would stay at home and run this consulting business. I had worked for Apple for some time and I just continued doing tech writing for Apple when I was working in my garage office and I had a nanny there. So um, you know, I worked for Microsoft, Netscape, Apple, of course, just writing about tech. And my husband was one of the original founders of TiVo. That's, you know, the pause live TV thing. He invented the TiVo remote and his, his business went public. So it was like the first time we weren't in startup mode and we, we thought, well, you know, we have this IPO stock everything's going to be great now. We have a nice college fund put away for our sons. And so to celebrate, we went and visited my friend who has a house in Martha's Vineyard. And wow, isn't this great? And they had a new sailboat and we sailed off to these little sandbar islands near Chilmark, Martha's Vineyard and um, had a, this great picnic. And, and, you know, I remember sitting on the boat, <laughs> sailing back to Martha's Vineyard. Said, this is, this is the best. Things are going to be great. Now I can quit my consulting and, and go to full-time screenwriting, it's just going to be great. And then, <laughs> you know, 
be careful what you wish for. Do you remember being bitten by a tick during that trip or was it the onset of the illness that ultimately brought you to your Lyme journey? So our friend, you know, had lived on Martha's Vineyard forever. She sent us tick brochures before we came. Hey, realize this is a problem. You need to do tick checks every day. So we did do tick checks every day, but like one of them got through, obviously for both of us. And I just... I remember after the visit to the island, we went to Boston, stayed overnight before we flew back to California. And I remember I had this like brain on fire rage. And that would have been maybe four or five days after we went to this island, which now we know is infested with infected ticks. But so that was the first symptom. And then we got back to our work lives in California. And after about a week, I mean, just we were sicker than we'd ever been before. Just imagine the worst flu you've ever had. And we looked each other in bed on Sunday night. And said, no way can we go to work tomorrow. And we both went to the doctors together to the emergency clinic. Then that started our Lyme journey, which was a year, 10 doctors and $60,000 to get diagnosed. So now, Chris, just so our listeners are clear, neither of your children were sick after that trip to Martha's Vineyard, correct? No, you know, on this trip to the island where I think we were bitten, it was a military, they used this island for, it's Nashawina Island, they used it for military target practice back in the day. They only played in the surf, and we went exploring on the island, which was only inhabited by cows, actually, in the grassy brush, so I'm fairly certain that's where we got bit. I mean, later, I found where I was bitten, which was below my hairline, or above my hairline. So, of course, on the back of your head, you're not going to see a bullseye rash. My husband thinks he was bitten behind his knee. And my tick bite site developed a tick bite granuloma, which is sort of a benign tumor. And it kept on weeping. So I got that cut out. (laughs) It was so annoying. Chris, can you share with us what the tick check protocol was that you were given by your friend in the pamphlets? Because one of the things that we've come to understand is that the protocols that are customarily shared with folks when they are shared, are generally poor. They just sort of give you highlights of the hot spots and recommend that you just sort of check in those places. Is that the kind of pamphlet you were given or was there more specific information about how to do a tick check provided to you? When I thought about the process, you know, we did do tick checks, our hair, our hairlines, but I think, I think the ticks hung out on our clothes <laughs> and we rewore the clothes the next day. I mean, they're just scrappy beach clothes, so... I think I would recommend, I would add in the brochure that if you wear clothes in tick infested areas, you know, put it in the dryer and run it for 20 minutes to kill whatever's on there. But of course, the tick had to be biting you for some period of time in order for you to contract Lyme disease. But the ticks are very small. They're poppy seed if they're seed ticks. So maybe, you know, we didn't see them. Chris, let's move forward on to how this disease began to develop and what symptoms you developed over time. Because I understand from your book that you ultimately had to stop working and you went from being a a two-income family to a one-income family and your husband had to drag his butt to work because he was really sick, but you folks needed the health insurance that was necessary for you to get the treatment you needed. Yeah. So it, it started out as typical flu. You know, you have a stiff neck horrible headache, achy. I mean, we were so weak. I was so weak. I had to crawl on my hands and knees to go up to my bedroom on the second floor. And, you know, I don't think I'd ever been that sick before. And you had fever, night sweats, brain confusion. And so, you know, you go and you think it's a virus. The first 
GP says, yeah, it's a virus, go away, come back if it gets worse. We came back in a week because it really did get worse. And the GP did a call to the infectious diseases person said, no, I mean, Lyme is really rare for both of them to get it would be impossible. And she said, no, it's a virus, come back if you get sicker. Or no, she then she referred us to the infectious disease doctor. And uh, ID doctors are backed up generally in the fall. You know, it's getting to be holiday season. Everybody's trying to use their insurance box before uh, the end of the year. And, you know, before you know it, it's like Thanksgiving before you see a doctor. And then infectious diseases doctors don't really believe in chronic Lyme. You know, we're two and a half months into it now. And he, the infectious disease doctor was skeptical. And he did a bunch of tests for diseases that didn't make sense for us. Even though, and all these doctors, I said, we were in, we were in Martha's Vineyard. It's Lyme disease is endemic there. Can you test for it? And they all said, no, it's a rare disease. So if the very first doctor had said, oh, Martha's Vineyard, Lyme disease, babesiosis, we would have been given a few days of doxy. And we never, <laughs> there would never be a book or a movie about Lyme disease. But they didn't. There's a deficit of education at that level. And so it just kept on getting worse around he gave us a very short dose of idaquinol which is a he thought maybe you have giardia or something that wasn't detected in the stool test so we took that and that was like the first time it was around before christmas that we had relief from you know what was now three months of agony and then uh i called him up and i said you know so th that got rid of our symptoms for the first time and i said well we need more of that because th then they relapsed over christmas break and I called him up and I said, can we please have more? He goes, no, we can't treat you based on your response to drugs. <laughs> you know, so I found myself begging for antibiotics like it was a Oxycontin or something and he wouldn't give it to us. So we switched doctors and then that doctor finally at a large academic center tested us for Lyme and I tested positive and my husband tested negative. And he, he said, well, that's a bad test, so I'm going to ignore it. And so then I go home and I go on the CDC website and then I say, I come back to him and I say, Hey, it says if you have a positive ELISA test for Lyme, you need to do the Western blot and you did not do that. And, and he, you know, he said, Oh, okay. I think he knew that he just was wanted to get rid of us. And then I tested positive for again, again. And then the large academic system fired both of us as patients and said, well, we don't have the tools to treat people like you, so you need to find another doctor. And so later on, I became friends with that doctor. He's Dr. D in my book. And he said, well, you know, our infectious disease department had a policy of not treating chronic Lyme disease patients, so I had to dump you. So, Chris, just to understand <laughs> this, you thought Lyme brought it to your doctors at the early stages of your sickness, and none of them would test for Lyme because they didn't believe it was a common disease. They thought it was very rare including infectious disease doctors who are the ones who are trained and supposed to be specialists in diagnosing infectious disease like Lyme disease. Is that accurate? That's accurate. And, you know, I just remember driving away from the doctor's office after they fired us as patients, just blubbering tears streaming down my face as I'm driving, you know, trying not to hit anything. A, feel, a complete feeling of abandonment, like I can't believe this is happening, you know, because at that point we'd been really, really sick for 10 months. I couldn't work anymore. I would just like go to my office. I had to shut down all my business except for my last Apple newsletter. I would sit at my desk and try to work. And then I would just say, well, forget this. And I would crawl up into the fetal position and lay on the rug in my office, 
trying to feel good enough to get up in the chair again. So I just couldn't believe it. And that's, you know, then there's this, this cloud in the cloud. There's this group of Lyme patients who seem to be on computer on the computer day and night. And so I was desperate. So now I had a positive, the first positive test, you know, we'd had 20 tests for various diseases this first positive. So I start Googling Lyme. I find a, an online forum and someone says, what are your symptoms and what are your test results? I give it to them. They go, of course you have Lyme and there's a Lyme doctor in your town. And so that started our journey. You know, it's like these angels in the cloud with Lyme disease. So it's patients helping other patients. And that's really how we got to our Lyme doctor who's very good. She's Stanford trained, but she, you know, she had Lyme in her family and she got religion. And so she risks her license to treat us and it, she put us on the right path and, we had a happy ending. Chris, backing up to this large academic institution that saw you, ran the test for Lyme disease, but just the ELISA test, it came back positive, ran a second ELISA test, came back positive again. Did they ever suggest or did you ask for a Western blot? Or at that point, did they just say, we can't help you, you need to move on to another doctor? So I had a Western blot and all they said was it's negative and they didn't tell me what the bands were. So the Western blot tests for a, a variety of antibodies, which are the response that your body has to an invasion of a disease. And if you're a chronic Lyme and you're, you've been in the fight for a while, you know that it's important which antibodies light up on their Western blot test, because it can tell you, you know, do you have early Lyme, late Lyme? Is it a strong signal or a weak signal? So, but they never, ever released the bands. I even called the test company and they wouldn't release the bands. So, I, it, they said it was negative, but the, the CDC bar for a positive on the Western blot is very tough. And I didn't reach that threshold. Now, as soon as we went to the Lyme doctor, my husband did a Western blot and it lit up like Christmas lights. He had CDC positive Lyme disease. Now that you then, found this Lyme litter doctor, thanks to going out and doing some research on the internet and social media, and now your husband had a positive Lyme test, you're, already, you're sitting on two positive Lyme tests. What did this Lyme litter doctor do with you for treatment, understanding that you actually have Lyme disease? The first thing she did is lie to me and say, everything's going to be okay, you know, uh, which I thank her for. I mean, she wasn't going to say this is going to be a super tough road, which it was, uh, because at that point, you're just so psychologically crushed. I mean, both of my husband and I admitted we thought we were dying at that point, and uh, we'd been so healthy and athletic, and then all of a sudden, every day you get up and you feel worse. And you come to the conclusion that this, you know, this germ might, whatever it is, might beat me. So she was a member of ILADS, which is the International Lyme Disease Group. And so they have a protocol. So it's start out slow with antibiotics to get rid of the, get the germ load down. So I think it was zithromycin, a low dose of zithromycin. And then you, then she watched for results. And so sure enough, we both went on zithro and we had this worsening of symptoms, which is called a Herxheimer reaction. And, and then she had a lot of detoxifying protocols because when you kill those little bugs, they're, they're toxic in your body. And, you, you know, at that point, you're just so, your waste elimination systems are so overwhelmed. You have to have these detox things. So we did that. And then she also tests for co-infections because Lyme disease with co-infections are just so much harder to cure. And also co-infections, some of them need different courses of antibiotics, different kinds of drugs. So later we found out we 
we both had babesiosis, which is endemic in Martha's Vineyard, and that's a malarial-like parasite. And you need to really, to kill that, you need anti-malarial drugs like Mepron. She did cocktails of antibiotics, slow at first, then ramping up the doses. And then you, you take breaks from that and detoxify your body and then wait and see if the symptoms return. And so you would do cycles of that. So Chris, now we're seeing a distinction between the way you were treated by traditional providers and now how you're being treated by a Lyme literate ILADS doctor. Why do you believe that the doctors who were treating you in the traditional setting were not willing or able to do the diagnostic testing and the treatment that you required and you ultimately received? I did the deep dive on the politics and the history of Lyme disease for the Lyme disease documentary I was a senior producer on Under Our Skin. And so there was a long history in the early days of Lyme disease. There was a vaccine and for some reason they designed the disease very narrowly at the symptom set. And and at that time some academic physicians published a lot of articles that like Alan Steer, for example, 21 articles in the 1990s that said Lyme disease is overdiagnosed and you can cure it with two to four weeks of antibiotics. I believe one of the reasons they did that is you couldn't run a successful vaccine trial if you had a chronic relapsing disease for which there was no reliable test. So there was this mythology that developed that Lyme disease is overdiagnosed. And, you know, a lot of the doctors we have now were trained in the 1980s and early 1990s, and they took that message to heart. They were in medical school, maybe they received 20 minutes of lessons on chronic on Lyme disease, and that's what stuck with them. And so I think it just takes a while to change clinicians' minds on that. So in addition to the training limitations that most of these doctors had, there, there's also a, a political overlay that would prevent them from digging into a patient like you when you presented yourself. So for example, if Dr. D at the initial interaction with you wanted to use the scientific method to determine what was wrong with you and what was wrong with your husband and whether or not you, you fit within the traditional population of people that were, that were tested under Steer's um, uh, research, he wasn't able to do that because there were both limitations placed on him by the hospital that he was working for and limitations placed on him by the educational system that was licensing him. Correct, correct. And in, in some states, if you violate from, at the time there was one set of treatment guidelines from the IDSA, the Infectious Diseases Society of America, and they pretty much said Lyme disease, easy to treat, easy to cure, two to four weeks, sometimes six weeks if you have severe neurological an of antibiotics and cure it. And if you deviate from that, you could lose your license. Not so much in California, but for example, in North Carolina, we, in the film, we followed a doctor, Dr. Jemsek, whose license was removed because he treated beyond that. So at the time too, there was a lot of fear about overuse of antibiotics. So if you prescribe too many antibiotics, some hospital administrator would censure you. And then there was a belief in the infectious diseases department that it indeed is overdiagnosed and the tests are good. And the test is almost everyone agrees now the, the frontline test, the ELISA is a horrible test and it misses a lot of truly positive people and they go on to become chronic. And then they say, well, chronic Lyme doesn't exist. There isn't even an insurance reimbursement code for it. So 
you're in a catch-22 situation. The testing and the clinical guidelines are so bad, you go on to become chronic, and then they won't treat you because that disease that you have doesn't exist. Now, Chris, let's explore your particular situation with the testing. If, if I recall correctly, your husband did not test positive on the ELISA, but ultimately did test positive on the Western Blot. Yes, and I was opposite. So you and your husband are an example of the failures of that testing protocol because you, you were negative on one and positive on the other, and he was vice versa. Right, right. But that first year, we had multiple tests, and we tested for babesiosis and Lyme multiple times for multiple labs. So there's no doubt we were bitten by a tick, and it was infected with multiple stuff. I suspect I had a rickettsial too because I had a classic rickettsial rash at the beginning of my disease on my limbs. So now let's talk about the challenges that the traditional doctors, and we'll use Dr. D as the model who I think ultimately did redeem himself at the end of your journey together. But let's, let's talk about Dr. D when you were first introduced to him and you were attempting to get a diagnosis at a major medical facility. There's another problem, of course, we see with doctors uh, stepping outside of the traditional protocol because in addition to having some challenges with licensing uh, entities, we also have insurance companies who are also sort of serving as uh, watchdogs where if the insurance codes are not strictly complied with, then the insurance carriers in many cases will make complaints to licensing boards as well. Yeah, so insurance companies at that time were grappling with soaring medical costs. And they needed to like stem stem the bleeding of the of those costs. Um, I remember talking to an executive at Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield of New York, and he said, "Oh yeah, like chronic Lyme patients are the number two most expensive patients we have here, besides AIDS patients." So the insurance companies, you know, with their secretive numbers on patients and costs of cures, knew about the problem with Lyme disease. So. They just went along with the academic physicians who were running the vaccine trials and said, yeah, let's, let's deny chronic Lyme disease because it saves us a lot of money. And also at that time, you know, if you had a pre-existing condition, like some sort of mystery tick-borne disease, then you had trouble getting insurance. So denying chronic Lyme disease was very profitable for the insurance companies. Well, and let's get to this last piece, and we're going to spend a little bit more time on this later, but there was another challenge for folks in the medical community who were confronted with chronic Lyme, because we now know, based on your research and, and your brilliant book, that not only were these doctors not well-trained for mixed germ infections, I think is the way you described it, but even more importantly, that these, these bacteria or these mixed germ infections may have been designed as bioweapons so that they wouldn't be easily detected. So in addition to having all of these administrative challenges that these doctors were, were going to have to face, ultimately maybe putting their own license in, in jeopardy, and their lack of training, they also had a disease that was probably created in a lab so that it wouldn't be detected. Well, what I do in the book is I go through the history of the biological weapons program. And they started out in the program in the 50s saying, we want really lethal, fast-acting germs. And the biological weapons program was almost as large as the Manhattan Project for nuclear weapons. And they were sort of were in an, a race for funding from the Pentagon. So it started out lethal. And then as the program progressed into the late 50s and the early 60s, they said, well, we need sort of a portfolio of 
insect-borne biological weapons. Maybe we should have sort of a stealth weapon. So they started developing chronically chronic incapacitating agents. So that would be like diseases in ticks. You could release them. You know, there's no fingerprints on the ticks that are full of diseases. So you can't tell where it came from and it's slow acting. And what it would do, it would disable the population so that it would be easier for your vaccinated soldiers to take it over. And instead of uh, having a lethal insect-borne weapon where you just need one undertaker and a body bag, you would have a sick person who needed, you know, a couple nurses, hospital, a hospital crew. It would drag the whole family down. So it was sort of total economic warfare, too, on the country that you were aiming these insect-borne weapons. So if you look at the definition of a chronic incapacitating disease, this is from text that I took from military documents. You know, it sounds, the symptoms sound just like chronic Lyme. Chris, we're going to back up to your Lyme diagnosis and treatment, and we're going to get back to the whole bioweapon component a little bit later on in the interview. So we want to learn more about what it was like for you and your husband when you were getting treated for this Lyme disease by this ILADS doctor you found. How did it feel to have these worsening of symptoms, getting a little bit better, then herxing again? What was that like for the long-term treatment of antibiotics that you and your husband both received? Well, it's just a, a years-long process. I hope we get better at it. But we, our doctor was really good at having us track our symptoms, like how we progressed from month to month. Because it's hard because you have peaks and valleys. It's like this sine wave that is slowly getting better. But I would say like... A, when I, after 11 months of untreated Lyme, I would call myself 20% of normal. I'm looking at my little spreadsheet where I was tracking how I felt. A year later, I was 60% of normal because we hadn't really treated the Babesia yet. And then two years after being diagnosed, I was 80% of normal. So 80% of normal, I could work. But it's, it's just really a long haul. And it's, it's hard because it's an invisible disease. And like if I had announced to everyone in my neighborhood, oh, I, I have breast cancer, people would bring casseroles over and everything. But no, it's invisible disease. People, people would say, oh, you look so good. Have you lost weight? You know, so uh, it's just hard to explain to people how you feel so bad. You say, oh, I'm just tired all the time, and they'll say, oh yeah, I'm tired too. It's like you don't, you do not know tired until you've had this disease. So, Chris, you talk about the social impacts that Lyme disease had on your family. I think you described your sons as having to take care of themselves, and you described yourself as becoming a social pariah. Can you describe in some detail what kinds of things you and your family had to face socially as a consequence of having this disease? Well, so I had kids in middle school, and so, you you know, as a mom, a working mom, you, you have to go to bake sales and galas and stuff, and so a lot of it is you lose the executive functions of your brain. So you go to a cocktail party or whatever, and you can't uh, distinguish between the conversation of the person in front of you and the 50 other people in the room. So you can't even do small talk or conversations and you, you have short-term memory deficits. So I couldn't do an interview like this because I couldn't listen to what you're saying, formulate an answer and get it out of my mouth. So forget about conversation. Then, then, I always felt like when I was in the, the depths of it, so, you know, nine, 10 months into untreated Lyme disease and babesiosis, it was like I was driving after having four martinis for lunch. 
I was a danger on the road. So I remember taking some kids to to a carpool and stopping at a light and not being able to remember what red, green, and yellow meant on the light. Like really having to think hard. Like it was a, a Fourier transform form mathematical equation I was solving in engineering school. It was just like super difficult. Or one day I was driving on a road that I drove every day of my life and I was going the wrong way on a one-way road or I would get out of my car and forget to turn the engine off. So at some point I said to my school mom friends, I cannot take your kids to soccer practice anymore. And they would be mad at me, not understanding that it was for their children's safety. Chris, on the note of brain fog and not having the cognitive ability that you had prior to getting sick, Something that's very common that isn't talked about often is not trusting yourself to take your own medication. So you were on these long-term antibiotics, this long-term treatment. Were there ever times that you questioned yourself? Did I take my nighttime medication? Did I take my medication? And what was that like for you? And how did you overcome that hurdle? Well, we would just get those pill packs. And and it was both my husband and I. So you have to realize, I don't know if our marriage would have survived it if we both didn't have it because we both knew what we were going through. We could help each other. So you know, we would get our, you know, week-long pill packs and at the beginning of the month, put them in there. So we were on track there. And we're both engineers. So that was okay. So it sounds like a, a hack for people that are going through this right now would be to use a pill pack or a pill organizer so they know when they took their medicine. If they forget 10 minutes later, they can just go back and look to see if they took the medication for that particular period of the day. Yes. Now, let's talk more about what else you did above and beyond the antibiotics over the several-year window of treatment, because there, you mentioned that you did a lot of things to detox, and there's some other things that go along with, with restoring your gut health and things like that with antibiotics. So what else did you do above and beyond the antibiotics to help your recovery? Well, part of the protocol in Lyme Literate Doctors is to always be replenishing your gut bacteria because the antibiotics are really hard on that. Then there were detox protocols when we were going through the heavy duty cleaning in between pulses, you would do Myers cocktails drips, which I think are vitamin C to help clean out your liver, et cetera. Personally, we both of us would try to go to a dry sauna once a week and just sweat out the drugs and the bugs. And that was super valuable. When you're initially starting the antibiotics, you can't get very hot or you could pass out system so overloaded but you know in the middle of it the sauna really helped and then we're both really religious about exercising try to exercise even walking you know every day because we're basically biomechanical pumps and moving is what helps detoxify you know pumping things through your liver and your urine to get clean where are you today and how is your health how is your health today compared to where it was back 16, 17, 18 years ago? I would say I'm fairly back to normal. My immune system is sort of a slacker, I would say. It's, it's slow to kick into gear, and I notice that sometimes, but it's really hard to say, is that age-related or is that... I'm sure the Lyme impacted it. You can't be that sick and not have some sort of impact there. So I've been good since 2008. 2008, we shipped our film, the Lyme documentary Under Our Skin, we shipped it. And the orals weren't keeping me um, healthy. I would relapse a lot. 
So I went on IV antibiotics, which really got the antibiotic in a higher concentration in my brain. And that was when, after uh, like about two months of antibiotics through IV, then I haven't had a relapse. Chris, how is your husband doing today? It sounds like he may have taken a slightly different approach and didn't take the IV antibiotics. So how has his journey been different than yours because he didn't take the IV antibiotics like you did? He relapsed three times. So he would be good for a couple of years and then there would be uh, work stress. I mean, that's another thing is work stress can drag you down. So both of us tried to have job situations where we minimize stress, but you can't always do that. So he had relapses and he had to go back on. And finally he did IV and he seems to be okay now. So looking back at your journey, Chris, what would you recommend to people who are in the middle of their Lyme journey? They just got their diagnosis. They're not sure what to do. There's so much conflicting information out there. What would be the number one recommendation you would provide to them based on your experience with Lyme disease? Number one, just get a really experienced Lyme disease doctor. I mean, if you had some weird brain tumor, you would find the doctor had treated that successfully the greatest number of times. So do your research, find a doctor that will help you that way. It, it might be expensive. So try to find someone who takes insurance. Then the second thing is based on my personal experience, I would have done IV as soon as possible. I mean, you wouldn't want to do IV maybe right when you're diagnosed because you do have to get the germ load down so that your own body can flush the toxins out. But I would have gone, if I had gone on IV, you know, after the first few months, I probably wouldn't have had this long road to recovery, which was really ultimately six years. Chris, some, some patients, even with the consultation of a Lyme litter doctor from ILADS, will consider using herbal therapy in combination with antibiotics. Have you ever considered that? And if so, why did you choose not to use herbs in your treatment plan? We used herbs on and off that, that you know, when we we're trying to get off antibiotics, we would use herbs on and off. They didn't work as well as the antibiotics. But I know, for example, uh, there's a doctor out of Johns Hopkins who has found some herbs that work, at least in the test tube, just as well as antibiotics. Herbs can still cause side effects too. But I'm optimistic about the research coming out because we have more um, high throughput methods to test more drugs against the germs in the petri dishes and test tubes. So those will eventually make their way to clinical trials, and that's good. Chris, do you feel that you've been able to successfully rebuild your gut health and your immune health since treating with these harsh antibiotics? Yeah, that's good for me. I haven't had any trouble with that. And I, I attribute that to the diligence that my Lyme literate doctor did in replenishing the gut bacteria along the way. So Chris, as a consequence of having this Lyme disease experience, your entire career path has changed. You went from being a consultant with a very successful business to then uh, having a career arc that took you in another direction. Can you share with us how you first began to do your Lyme disease uh, research and why it took you to the place where you began to produce films and then ultimately write books? Yeah, so during the first year of my recovery, then I started doing research. I understood the political landscape and I was sort of like appalled that the mainstream medical literature about Lyme disease was so different than what people were experiencing in the field. So I like to say the well of scientific information on Lyme disease had been poisoned. So I thought, well, all we need is a better awareness. So I said, maybe a documentary is the best way to do it. 
So you can, before the only information came from these academic researchers who published in JAMA, New England Journal of Medicine, and, um, you know, they were the authorities. And I said, if people could really hear the patient stories that I hear in the waiting room of my Lyme literate doctor, they would, they would realize this is epidemic and it would help. So I started this documentary and at the same at the same time I started the research, I ran into another filmmaker, Andy Abrahams Wilson, who had started a documentary too. And so we joined forces and it was just a really good team because he's a very talented filmmaker and I'm a dogged researcher. So it took us three and a half years, but we got this film that really covered the patient stories, how they're being misdiagnosed, the landscape where well-meaning Lyme physicians were having their licenses removed for getting patients better and just sort of the political forces, the incentives in the insurance industry and pharma to marginalize and ignore these patients. So that documentary came out and I was sick and recovering while I did it, but I think it did a lot of good. After that, I was, it was exhausting, you know, and then I went on IV and I finally got hundred percent better. And after that, I told my husband, Hey, you know, I am, I am done fighting for the cause. I'm healthy now. I got a good job at Stanford writing, doing science writing. I'm going to move on and let other people carry the torch. I'm sorry, Chris, before we go on to that, because I, I'm excited to talk with you about that, I'd like to focus on the, on the film first. So mm-hmm. we've, had many, we've had many guests suggest to us or tell us directly that their journey began when they watched that film, that they finally found an answer to their symptomology that they weren't able to get from any other source uh, until they watched your film. Have you received that type of input or that kind of response from patients in the patient community? And then I'd also like to share with us how that film was received critically and how that film was received by the medical community. I get positive feedback all the time on the film. I mean, people saying things like, that film saved my life. No one else could give me the answers. And I, you know, I've heard a lot of stories where I turned the film off 30 minutes into it and took the DVD across town to my brother-in-law, who's the infectious disease doctor, who didn't believe me, you know, stories like that. So it, it also, so it helped people get diagnosed. It helped patients feel like they're not alone, that there's all these other people that have gone through this, what I would call a surreal medical nightmare (laughs) of getting treated and getting well. And then, you know, it maybe didn't change too many doctors' minds, but at least it showed the disparity between what's in the medical literature and what patients are experiencing on the ground, these crazy mixed tick-borne infections. So, Chris, I understand that that film was also critically acclaimed, meaning um, there were uh, a number of different organizations that had given you awards for the creation of that film. Can you share that with us? Yeah, so it launched at the Tribeca Film Festival, which is one of the top film festivals, very competitive in the U.S. And then it went on to win 20 documentary awards as it went through the film festival circuit. And then it was ultimately on the the shortlist for the Oscars in 2010. And so that means there was 15 finalists for documentaries, feature-length documentaries. So it was very critically acclaimed, which is, pretty great for a disease film. <laughs> it's also great for someone who wasn't a filmmaker, right? Was this the first film you had ever made? Yes, but you know, I had Andy Abrahams Wilson directing it. He was very experienced. So now let's, let's take the next step in and focus on a different medium that you had focused on, which is now um, you 
finish uh, the film, you're a couple of weeks um, into making the commitment that you're just gonna focus on your family and your new career at Stanford, and then you move into another medium uh, and you actually start to develop this story a little bit differently than you did in, uh, in your film. Yeah, so the, the book started, well, we are, when we were interviewing Willie Brigdor for the discoverer of Lyme disease, that's Andy and I in 2007, we knew there was more, there was more secretive stuff involved with Lyme disease because we were in Hamilton, Montana, setting up our cameras and everything and to interview Willie. And then all of a sudden there was a knock on the door and someone from the lab says, I, I need to sit on this interview. And Andy didn't let him in. But during that interview, Willie was really mad. And he said things that were no other public official had said, where he said Lyme disease can be chronic. The NIH knows that it affects the neurolo neurological system of children much more intensely than adults. So that was shocking. And, and we had a really good interview with him. Then after we turned off the camera, he had a little smile and he says, I didn't tell you everything. So he was teasing us. So that was planted in our head, but we, you know, we'd been working on the film for three years. We had to get it out. And we, it was not very popular to go down that sort of conspiracy route at the time. And so that was in the back of my mind when Two weeks after I told my husband I was done with Lyme disease, I was going to move on, I get a call from a documentary filmmaker, Tim Gray, who had done a, a film, a documentary that raised the question of a biological weapon's origin. And he, he called me and said, I just talked to Will and he said, there was a biological weapon involved with Lyme disease. And I said, yeah, right. And he said, no, no, I have it on video. And so he sent me the video and I watched it. It was about a three hour plus interview with him. And he cries in several places, which seemed to indicate guilt, but he had advanced Parkinson's, so I couldn't 100% be sure. But that was the start of the book. I said, if it's true, this is sort of a crime against humanity, and people need to know about it. And I was uniquely positioned to write about it because I'd had the disease. I had this engineering brain. I had a lot of experience in medical research with my new job. So I said, I'll dip my toe in the water and look into it and see if this confession is legitimate. And that started the book. And five and a half years later, it came out. So, Chris, let's let's for those of our listeners who are not familiar with uh, Willie Bergdorf, let's let's put him in context of before you begin to do your work and you do your exploration. Who was he, and why was he such a heralded figure in the U.S. and and around the world? So, Willie Bergdorf worked at the Swiss Tropical Agent, or he trained there and worked there uh, in the early fifties. And his first real job, he was hired by the Rocky Mountain National Laboratory in Hamilton, Montana, to do tick disease research. So he did that for 34 years. And uh, when he was 56 years old, he was called in to help investigate this very mysterious outbreak of a mystery tick-borne disease around Long Island in Lyme, Connecticut. So... He analyzed ticks from that area and was the first to notice these squiggly corkscrew-shaped bacterium, which we now call Borrelia burgdorferi after him. So he discovered it, and that was heralded as the cause of this disease in that area. And so that's what he's famous for. And because of the, because of the research that he had done and the alleged discovery of the bacteria that was then named after him, he was heralded in many areas of 
science and, and in academia. So can you share with us some of the academic accolades that he had received and some of the awards that he had uh, received for his work on that bacteria? He won the Bristol Award and well, there's a whole list of awards on his online that he won in the, his Wikipedia page. You know, he got top awards from the NIH. He claimed that he was on the short list for the Nobel Prize, I, but I haven't been able to confirm that. So that, that was the public story, and it was a great sort of NIH success story. Uh, Yale had been investigating this disease in the New York Department of Health for 10 years about, and they couldn't figure out what was causing it. And here this NIH scientist came and working late into the night, cut open a tick and found this spirochete in the tick's midgut. And lo and behold, it's easy to cure two to four weeks. So that was the story fit to print. And that's what everybody believed until I started my book. So now you start to do your research based on the challenge that is presented to you when you complete your interview with Willie Bergdorfer. And um, what, do you begin to, what do you begin to discover about uh, Willie's early life and his early work that causes all of us to believe that perhaps he is not the hero that he's been portrayed as? During my interview with him, which was in 2013, he says, yeah, I worked two decades in the biological weapons program, weaponizing eight-legged insects for war. So he put plague and fleas. He put a very deadly yellow fever from Trinidad in mosquitoes. And he put various <laughs> deadly diseases and incapacitating diseases. He would force feed them in ticks or he would inject them in ticks so that you could take these insects that were infected with deadly pathogens, which were non-native to wherever you were going to drop them, so they would cause intense disease. And it's the perfect stealth weapon. I have a quote in the book from a, an army document that says, the advantage of arthropods, that's fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes as bioweapons carriers are these. They inject the agent directly into the body so that a mask is no protection to a soldier, and they will remain alive for some time, keeping an area constantly dangerous. So the goal of this research that Willie Bergdorf was participating in was to, was to create a stealth agent, one that would be hard to diagnose, not only protect against, but also diagnose once someone was infected with the disease. Yeah, and once Willie admitted that he was in the biological weapons program, and the fact that he, of anyone on the planet, he had the most to lose by saying, hey, the thing I discovered in Long Island, there was another organism there that I was asked to cover up. And he was implying that Borrelia burgdorferi was a misdirection from this biological agent. So he had the most to lose. I mean, his whole reputation was based on this discovery of this, this spirochete. And what he was saying is, my, all my fame is based on a lie. So to me, that was a couple months after I'd gotten this interview from Tim Gray. To me, it was enough, okay, I think there's a story here. I think his confession is probably true, but I knew it was an audacious claim. And so I really needed to gather a lot of evidence to bolster it before I came, before I went public with it. Otherwise, it would just be dumped in the conspiracy dustbin of history. So Chris, but this is exactly what we see from almost all of the people who have uh, been diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease. We see this long period of time between when symptoms begin and when they're ultimately diagnosed. In fact, 
Um, we recently came across a study that was done by Brian Fallon out of Columbia University, and what Dr. Fallon found was that the average child who has Lyme disease must see seven separate doctors before he or she or they are diagnosed with a tick disease. So it seems to me that, that the difficulty that we're having in diagnosis, at least of chronic Lyme disease, is in part due to the design of people like Dr. Willie Bergdorfer and others who are participating in the bioweapons program. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's possible. So, I mean, it's not 100% proven, but that's what it looks like. And a lot of the reason behind kids having such a long time to be diagnosed are the things I, I mentioned earlier. The medical literature doesn't reflect reality of complicated mixed tick-borne diseases. We have a horrible screening test that is no better than a coin flip. So if we solve those two things, then we would be protected you know, we'd be protecting our population from this growing epidemic, and it would help protect us from future attacks like this. So, Chris, one of the things that you talk about in the book is this mixed germ infection challenge. And one of the things that I found most powerful, or one of the things I found very powerful in your book is that you suggested that part of Willie Bergdorfer's uh, bioweapons research included his effort to try to put multiple germs into the ticks. Yes. So this was a strategy used on a couple different levels by the biological weapons program as it really got more diabolical in the 60s. So mixed germs. And so in the 60s, they moved from germs inside of insects, which was very not very practical in a military forum. So they would go to just the microbes, like brewing them, growing them in large vats in mass quantities, maybe mixing viruses with bacteria and then freeze drying them so that they're spores and they could be sprayed over large areas. It was called the LAC program, large area coverage. And so they would spray it from boats, uh, from buoys, from planes. Uh, and they did a lot of feasibility tests with live bacteria. They were simulants, so they supposedly weren't going to kill civilians during these secret tests. But it turned out in some cases like off San Francisco, they did kill people. But we have a really sordid history here, and some of which has to do with some of the testing. But let's talk about some of the other things that Dr. Bergdorfer participated in. For example, I understand that some of his testing protocol included him putting some of these agents into prisoners so that they were, so that these prisoners were, were the subject of tests. And I think there were also seven-day Adventists who were, who were conscientious objectors, and they were also used as test subjects. So it seems to me that the, you know, that some of the most troubling parts of uh, medical history and medical research, including the, the syphilis studies that we're all familiar with and some of the studies that were done in Nazi Germany on, uh, on people in concentration camps. So it looks like we were doing some of that here in the Lyme disease community as well. Yeah, so Willie worked on um, experiments that I, I think were supporting the bioweapons program on Colorado tick fever virus. And so that's a virus that really affects the brain. It caused hemorrhaging in the brain. And he did do experiments on Montana prisoners with that. And he seemed to feel very guilty about that in the public docket, in the, um, the progress reports of the NIH, it said no one died. But based on his response, I think he was upset about that. And so anyways, let's, let's back up. So after World War II, America captured and offered jobs to a bunch of um, Hitler's bioweapons people and some of the bioweapons people from Japan. So they had learned 
at that point that their biological weapons programs were much more advanced than they had ever realized. And it got them scared. And, and the Russians had taken some of those scientists too. So that really became the start of the biological weapons race, which I think no good came from that. So we took a lot of those ideas and concepts and supersized them. You know, we figured out, Willie was involved in figuring out how to package fleas infected with plague in tubes so that they could be released in bombs over large areas. So I talk about that. I mean, the book goes through a lot of those experiments. And there was at least one experiment where I believe that ticks were released over Cuba. Uh, there were, I think there was a young 22-year-old um, CIA agent who was tasked with releasing uh, experimentally two boxes of ticks, uh, which they, they did release. And uh, ultimately, his own child became very sick. Yeah, that was, that was shocking, uh, an eyewitness. And, you know, if you read, this was part of the Cold War battle against Cuba, where the Kennedy brothers really wanted to disable the economy of Cuba so that the people would oust Fidel Castro, the communist leader, who was in, co you know, in collusion with the Russians. And so it was part of economic warfare. And this, this tick drop, you know, I had a, a witness, but then it was confirmed later when the Kennedy assassination files were released and I found confirmation of the operation he was talking about. So I'll just read it. It says, on this section from Task 33, the Cuba Project, in a top secret memorandum. It was, on a, dis a most discreet, strictly need-to-know basis, defense is to submit a plan on the 2nd of February on what it can do to put a majority of sugarcane workers out of action, unable to work in the cane fields and sugar mills for a significant period for the remainder of this harvest. It is suggested that planning consider non-lethal biological weapons, insect-borne. So this is what I was saying about chronic incapacitating tick diseases, so dropping poison ticks from planes. So now, when you spoke with uh, Dr. Bergdorfer, he, he implied to you that there was some other agent or there was some other pathogen that was being passed on that was causing folks to be sick other than the, the Lyme bacteria. And I, one, of the, one, of the, one of the side notes I'd like to share with you is we did an interview with Richard Horowitz recently. And uh, one of the questions that I raised was, has Dr. Horowitz cured Lyme? Because he suggested that he was using a new form of antibiotics that was, were, were successfully treating uh, Lyme patients. And in response to the question that I asked with our podcast, Dr. Horowitz wrote a long response on one of his social media sites where he said that he was only really having success with this new antibiotic for folks who only had the Lyme bacteria, meaning if someone had had the multi-germ infection that you had described, that this new antibiotic protocol was not going to be successful or was being successful in this clinical trials. So I think it's really important that we, that we explore the challenges that were being presented by Dr. Bergdorfer and, and this multi-germ infection and maybe the creation of, uh, of a more viral form of bacteria that seems to be, you know, the, the, the secret here, right? So what was Dr. Bergdorfer referring to when he said it may not just be Lyme? Well, in my interviews and then digging into his original lab books, which I got a hold of or copies of them, you know, what he was saying is that he believed, and this is confirmed in letters back and forth 
between the people who were involved in that original outbreak around Long Island and Connecticut. He, he said there was this Rickettsial-like organism closely related to Rocky Mountain spotted fever that he believed was causing the disease. And they were about to go public and say that uh, this is what was making people sick. And then all of a sudden, about a year and a half before the spirochete was announced, everything about that Rickettsial, which I call Swiss Agent USA, was buried. And this mysterious Swiss Agent USA, the only Rickettsial that it tested positive for was one that Willie had discovered in Switzerland around 78, 79. So he claimed discovery for the Swiss agent in, in Switzerland, but never mentioned that Swiss agent USA since 1980. So to me, that was a mystery and uh, that I haven't been able to solve. But this Riquetzal is like nobody's looking for it. There's no, well, at the time I discovered it, there was no test available in the U.S. for it. And Riquetzals are so small, they're virus-like, they live inside of cells, they can't live at, you know, very easily outside in a petri dish. And so if you're not looking at, for them with specific tests, you would never see them. So, and they're insidious too, you know, they go inside your cells and disrupt, they disrupt your whole uh, m metabolic system at a cellular level. So really devastating. And they can, some of them can be chronic. So that was an important clue. And I'm hoping scientists can confirm it. You know, this hypothesis that this Riquetzal was maybe the thing that's making these people with supposed crime, chronic Lyme disease really sick forever. So why do you suspect that Dr. Bergdorfer walked back his Swiss Agent USA research, or at least his findings on Swiss Agent USA, and just published his findings on the uh, Lyme bacteria? Well, to me, you know, I look at his phone log at the time, you know, he sends these letters to Alan Steer, et cetera. Oh, we're so excited. We found the cause of Lyme disease at this Rokessel. And then I saw his phone log and he was communicating with a lot of the old army Rickettsial people because they've always been worried about, the army's always been worried about Rickettsials as a biological weapon because it can be powderized and it's been weaponized before. Q fever is sort of a Rickettsial-like agent that's always been a problem. And it seems like after those military conversations, that's when an alternative theory was developed, which was the spirochete. So it, it appears to be a cover-up, but you know, I, I did not prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt. That's a hypothesis based on letters and documents and phone logs. So I, look, I'm, I'm happy to talk with you about your suspicions. I, and I appreciate you uh, distinguishing what you believe you've definitively proven versus what you've not yet been able to definitively approve. But uh, I'm sorry, definitively prove. But, you know, there, there is this concern that I have that one of the reasons why people are not testing positive for Lyme disease um, with the current testing protocols is because they don't in fact have Lyme disease as we know it, meaning it's not what we know to be the Lyme bacteria, but it may be the Swiss agent USA that we're not looking for and we're not testing. And it's not appearing when people are taking these traditional two-tier tests because it's not what the test is looking for. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of the hypothesis that I, or the conclusion I come to at the end of the book is if you look at people who test positive for Lyme, about 20, 25% go on and have chronic symptoms. And maybe these chronic symptoms are because they have a co-infection that isn't being looked for. 
a co-infection that may have been like like the like the rickettsial, you know, or maybe I mean maybe it's a weaponized something that we haven't identified because of course you know the military wouldn't put the genome in the public genome libraries. So Chris, I'd like you to talk to you about about the weaponization of these diseases. Now, my my understanding is is that when you're when you're designing and uh, and I'd like to talk to I'd like you to put your engineer's hat on now, right? If you were going to design a bioweapon, you would you would want to design a bioweapon that would be highly viral. Can you explain what that means, what virility means? So they have this measurement in the bioweapons world uh, and microbiology is lethal dose 50. So like what dose of the germ will kill 50% of the people? So what you have to do if you're developing the perfect bioweapon is have a series of experiments you know, first in the test tube and then ultimately in humans. And as they move to aerosol weapons, there are a lot of engineering factors that have to be perfected. You have to figure out how do you keep the microbe alive over a long period of time. And then when you release the spores of the biological weapon, you know, what is the purpose, perfect size of the particle so that it nests perfectly in the little air sacs in your lungs so that you can infect that person and some of the best biological weapons for example anthrax or q fever you, you can like kill someone with two or three particles landing in the lung, lung perfectly so it gets to be quite diabolical but what happened in sport dietrich to do human testing they they develop vaccines and they use test subjects uh, to be submitted these vaccines and then they would aerosolize these germs for testing in this uh, a million liter sphere, which was called the eight ball. And subjects would press their faces against holes of the sphere and breathe these in. And then medical doctors would track their health and really evaluate, is this the right particle size? What, what's the lethal dose? I mean, of course they didn't kill the, no one died in the eight ball experiments, but how sick did they get using this mix? Well, the folks in the April experiments didn't die immediately, but we don't know what their lives were like after they left the experiment, right? These are the folks who were conscientious objectors, and they were ultimately um, they were ultimately tasked with volunteering to test uh, these various bacteria and these uh, antibodies, right? Yeah, they're mostly Seventh-day Adventists. And then the other place where there was a lot of open-air testing was Dugway Proving Grounds uh, in central Utah, which was, you know, 50, 50 miles as the crow flies to uh, Provo in Salt Lake City. So in a way, the Mormons were used as test subjects too. Well, it's interesting how that's come full circle because there, there's a, a really strong Mormon element to your story, not only with your background, but with uh, some of the folks who played a role in preserving and making available Dr. Bergdorfer's papers. But we're gonna get to that in a minute. I wanna say, say with the virulence for a minute, when we interviewed Dr. Bill Rawls, the author of Unlocking Lyme, and, and we were asking him questions about virulence. And the way he described it was that if the human population had come in contact with a particular uh, disease during, during human history, that we would, in most cases, have the capacity to manage that disease because we would have essentially the software to protect us against that. But if we didn't come in contact with, with a particular disease during the course of uh, human history, whether it be a disease like Ebola or AIDS, that would be more 
it would be more viral and we wouldn't have protections against it. Um, do you believe that that was part of what the bioweapons researchers were looking at when they were coming up with their bioweapons tools? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's in the literature that they were doing that. And so there's a lot of examples in history about that. For example, chicken pox, you know, when the Christian missionaries went to Hawaii, a lot of the native Native Americans there or Native Hawaiians died of chicken pox or syphilis as the Spaniards hit South America and Central America. So definitely that's it. You know, so w what we see, I mean, what I saw when I was looking at the backstory of the Lyme disease outbreak is there were actually three known really virulent new tick-borne diseases that showed up in 1968 around Long Island Sound and the five states around there, including Lyme, Connecticut. And that is there was babesiosis, which before was only found in cattle, the malaria-like disease that I got with my husband. And uh, at the time, that was the, only the second human case in the U.S. around there. And then there was this strange rickettsial that uh, looked like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, but didn't always test positive, which my hypothesis is that Swiss agent USA. And then there was this strange spirochete. Well, we didn't know it was a spirochete, but it was Lyme arthritis that the Yale people were investigating around. Yeah, so it's it's really it would set off all the military biological weapons alarms to see three unusual, highly deadly or disease-causing tick-borne diseases all at once in one area. So, um, yes. And so, you know, over hundreds of years, you have a disease and the weak mammals die and people develop, like, like, uh, Dr. Rawls said, immunological memory that protects it against it. But when you have a new germ, there's high morbidity and mortality, a lot of animals dying. And that's what we really saw, you know, with that 1968 outbreak. One of the most interesting parts of your book, and I, maybe I should stop saying that because all of it has been interesting, uh, but one of the things that really struck me was, um, was that you theorized that the biological weapons program that was taking place, which you, you say rivaled the type of resources that were dedicated to the Manhattan Project, that, that the Russians may have either stolen or purchased some of the bacteria that Dr. Bergdorfer was uh, working with. Can you explore that with us? Yeah, in my interview and, and another person's interview, he said that he had had two visits of men in black, and he thought they were FBI agents who came to his lab and questioned him about missing agents from his freezers. And then he chuckled and said, well, the Russians stole them. And we mostly always thought that the Russians had the most virulent agents, but in this case, our version was more virulent, and he would never elaborated what they were. Um, I have a, a rough time frame of when they came, which was after 9-11, when all of a sudden, you know, the American military and the CDC go, oh, we don't really have a good inventory of what, you know, what bioweapons might be hiding out in the corners of somebody's super freezer. So they did an inventory, and I think that's when they found it missing. But I f have filed Freedom of Information Act. Uh, in multiple agencies trying to find out details on those visits. And I've, I've never, ever, there's deniability that they exist. Or for example, with the CIA, they said, well, we might have those documents, but we can't confirm or deny. <laughs> so, 
I, I believe Willie told that story to enough people, his second wife, his kids, that it's true. It's just I haven't been able to confirm that. So now you explore two different theories in your book. One of your theories that you explored is that the observations you made about the diseases that were, were found around the Long Island Sound and the five states could have been released by the Russians. And the second theory you explored, and I think it's where you ultimately came down, was that perhaps there was an erroneous release from Plum Island. Yeah. As, a, as an almost lifelong Long Islander who has been dealing with this for the entirety of my life, and although I've never been to Plum Island and I never want to go to Plum Island, I've certainly, I've certainly looked at Plum Island from, uh, you know, from the shores of Long Island. It, it's, it's really scary to believe that, you know, that we would be developing these bioweapons and we either wouldn't be securing them enough so that the Russians couldn't steal them and ultimately uh, release it on, uh, on our population, or even more importantly, that we would be doing that type of testing at Plum Island and then, uh, and then not securing enough so that it wouldn't be released into the public. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one thing I do is, Bitten is, goes through the history of Willie Bergdorfer's life, and he did... Mid-career, he had money problems and pressures, and he, uh, as a renowned tick researcher, went to Europe a lot and went behind the, the Iron Curtain. So he had a lot of interactions and a lot of letters back and forth to Russians. And in this 1970, I can't remember, 74 conference he went to, he opened up a secret Swiss bank account for the first time, left the passbook in Switzerland and came back and made a lot of large purchases. So his money problems seemed to go away. So that's that's like one thread there that is impossible for me to prove. I don't have subpoena power, but it was interesting. It seems more likely that the bioweapons program was doing hundreds and hundreds of uh, feasibility tests and a CIA unit embedded in in the biological weapons headquarters in Dietrich did a lot of these nefarious sort of anti-Russian tests on an unsuspecting public. So I go into those, like they did, they released live bacteria in the New York subway system and they, they did tests off San Francisco spraying live bacteria and (laughs) infected a lot of people. So to me, it's just as likely that it's a series of accidents where we released aggressive Lone Star ticks that eventually made their way up to Long Island. And those, those ticks spread rickettsials very quickly. And then we also did these open air tests. So it could be a series of unfortunate accidents that led to the epidemic that we have now. Chris, you, you theorize in your book that if appropriate steps had been taken at the time that the Lyme, Connecticut outbreak had been discovered, that perhaps we wouldn't be in the middle of an epidemic or a pandemic if uh, there were proper tick control measures and public information measures put in place. Can you expound upon that? And do you believe if, if the government was honest and they did put proper protections in place, would this worldwide epidemic have been prevented? I mean, I, I think so. And you see those principles in operation with the coronavirus panic going on now and that they realize if if you get it early on you can contain it you you create a a perimeter i mean you could have created a perimeter where we sprayed toxic chemicals around the original outbreak if we knew where the outbreak was and that we would more aggressively treat the animals and people infected 
But instead, because of this cover-up, what I believe is, is a cover-up, you know, it's this epidemic has gone 50 years unimpeded. And now, you know, the bullseye rings of the disease have spread up through Maine. Maine's in crisis state right now. And now it's, it's, the ticks are crawling into Canada. It's going to be much harder to put that genie back in the bottle. Well, we, we've interviewed folks from all over the world on our podcast, Europe, Asia. Uh, we, we've interviewed folks from, uh, from Mexico, so it's still North America, Canada. And we see this, this problem is certainly spreading beyond just, uh, you know, the Northeast. So it, it seems to me that at this point, it's probably impossible. And what I find most offensive about it is that this just reminded me of the, of the scandal we have in the Catholic Church, where there were pedophile priests who the, who the administration had clearly identified as pedophiles, but what they did is they protected them and moved them from church to church and community to community. And one of the reasons why um, my church is crashing is because of the cover-up rather than you know, the, the small percentage of people who were pedophiles. It seems to me that that's analogous to what happened here, where it's not just the, you know, what, what, whether it was a bioweapon that the Russians got control of and they released, or it was something that was mistakenly released around Plum Island. Uh, I, I think the cover-up is the bigger problem, and, and it's not so much the error that I think um, was probably being made, being made internationally. I mean, you, you, you do discuss in your book testing that was done in Canada, that was, th that was done in conjunction with the UK and Canada and the American government. The Russians were clearly doing this, the Germans and the Japanese were doing this, and probably many other countries. So uh, I think it's the cover-up that's the bigger issue than, than, than the release itself. Yeah, and I think a shortcut to getting to a solution is for the military to say, okay, what happened in the Cold War can't stay in the Cold War. You know, we need to declassify these documents and know what germs were released in what area in these large area coverage and open air experiments. So what was it? What, what vaccines were developed for the soldiers and did they work or didn't they work? And, you know, that would save millions and millions of research dollars to know what to look for. Just like this raquetful, if it's bioweaponized, like we haven't even been looking for it. So let us know what to look for so we can treat these people. There's, you know, the two outbreaks uh, in the 60s and 70s were in the Wisconsin area, which just coincides with the University of Wisconsin, which was heading up the biological weapons program and then around Long Island. So let, let's release that. And what we saw in the summer is Chris, Representative Chris Smith of New Jersey uh, in the middle of a Department of Defense funding budget raised my book high and said, this, this evidence of a biological weapons release is really strong and we need to investigate that. And he added an amendment to the DOD bill to look into that. It, it, it got pulled out at the last minute in December, but, you know, I think he's right. It will save lots of research dollars to know what was released when so we can help beat back this epidemic. So you made some suggestions in your book about what we could do if that does not happen. And I, and, and I have to admit that I'm a lot less pessimistic now than I ever was about whether or not we'll get that type of transparency from the military. So you made a, a, a series of recommendations about what would need to be done if we're going to be able to get a handle on this challenge. Can you share with our listeners what you recommended in your book in order to be able to succeed in putting this genie, or if, if we can't put the genie about it, containing this epidemic? 
Um, yeah, I'm just, it, I have a call to action, you know, in the, in the end of the book, it's just like, let's, let's get real about doing surveillance on what, what diseases are spreading where. So at least last May, the CDC finally admitted, okay, we need to revamp our surveillance program because it's unmanageable and inaccurate. So that, that's a first step. And then it's a call to the scientists. Let's, let's really do some deep pathogen screening in these people who are sick to find out like all the organisms that are in them. We've sort of oversimplified the tick-borne disease problem saying it, you either have Lyme or you don't have Lyme. And that's not reality. And, you know, a lot of that is because the way scientists do science, they, you have to isolate one factor and, and do it, but we've oversimplified a really complicated problem. And then it's for, you know, the medical system to own these patients and not reject them and remove the licenses of well-meaning physicians who are just trying to get these patients well. So Chris, I, I have one, two other issues I want to discuss with you. You've been really generous with your time, and I could probably keep you on for another 10 hours, but that wouldn't be fair to you or your family. So let me, let me explore two other issues with you. So one of, the, one of the issues that I was very concerned about before reading your book was the impact that global warming was having on, on the spread of tick diseases. And, and I'm, I'm even more concerned. Um, I, I was very concerned after I read uh, Mary Beth Pfeiffer's book. And uh, and her theory that global warming, of course, is expanding the tick population. But I'm just wondering whether or not we sort of have this perfect storm, because I've heard different theories about why folks believe the pandemic is, um, is occurring. I think Mary Beth's argument was that the pandemic's occurring because of global warming, and she made a very convincing case. I, I've, I've debated this issue with Dr. Rawls, who I, who I think is a wonderful man, uh, but his argument was he didn't believe that global warming had an impact. He believes and I don't want to, I don't want to uh, reduce his very complex theory into just one sentence, but I'm going to try to. And essentially, he was arguing that we live in a, a high-stress environment, and because we live in a high-stress environment, our immune system is not as capable of defending against uh, these types of pathogens. And now, I, you know, and now you bring a whole new perspective to this, which is a designed bioweapon, which, which we don't have natural defenses to, and the medical community does not have the capacity to diagnose because it was designed to be difficult to diagnose. Do we really have a perfect storm of events with uh, global warming and environmental change, uh, a bioweapon that's gotten out of control and a conspiracy to prevent that from being contained? And then of course, a more high stress environment that we're all living in and therefore uh, less capacity to fight off these pathogens? Um, yes. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's complex. We live in a complex world. I mean, the, I would add that the toxins in our food and pesticides, et cetera, is a huge factor. And it makes these tick-borne diseases even worse. You know, also, for example, uh, 1940 detergents were introduced and we wash our skin with that. And are we removing natural barriers on our skin that would protect us from tick bites? I mean, I had one UVA and professor there talk about that theory. And I thought that was compelling too. Yeah. And I think we have a medical system that is incentivized to ignore these patients and it's, it's going to crash our system down if we don't get a handle on it because like, like the bioweapons people uh, designed bioweapons to do, it's, it's going to bring our economy down. You, you can't run a nation with 
armies of chronically sick people. What would you recommend to the average person so that they can protect themselves from this challenge? And if they do find themselves bitten by a tick, what should they do to prevent themselves from getting chronically ill? I would say save your tick, send it into uh, credible labs for testing. So uh, Bay Area Lyme Foundation will test ticks for free, but the quickest solution might be to send it to your local health department for testing. And the advantage to that is then they have a better accounting for what diseases are in their area and it will help others. And then if people aren't, if you think you've been affected by tick-borne diseases and your healthcare provider laughs it off or ignores it, don't waste time trying to change that person's mind. Find a, a person experienced in the diseases so you can get treated quickly. Just, I can't overemphasize getting treated with antibiotics really quickly because the longer you wait, the harder you, it'll be to get better. And, you know, finding an experienced person is the quickest path to that, even though it might be expensive in the short run, uh, it'll pay off in the long run. Thank you for listening to the Tick Boot Camp interview with guest author, Chris Newby. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Chris Newby and her tick disease journey, please visit her at Newby Chris or at Bitten the Book. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Boot Camp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Boot Camp has created a transcript of this podcast interview with Chris Newby. If you'd like to receive a copy of the interview transcript, please visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com and insert your email address. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us a review on iTunes or on website. Thank you for listening.